Welcome to the John Wesley Fellows Podcast, the show where John Wesley Fellows have the opportunity to sit down with experts in a variety of fields to talk about issues and topics that are top of mind in today's community. The centerpiece of a foundation for theological education, the Wesley Fellowship Program helps identify, train, and support scholars who are trained in the classical Wesleyan tradition and are committed to traditional innovation. For more information, visit aftesite.org. On today's episode, Dr. Stephen Rankin interviews Dr. Ephraim Radner, professor of historical theology at Wycliffe College, about Radner's recent article on theology after the virus and how the COVID-19 pandemic has presented a new opportunity to engage in theological education. Enjoy today's episode. Hello, my name is Stephen Rankin, and I'm delighted today to have a conversation with Professor Ephraim Radner of Wycliffe College in Toronto, Ontario. He's an ordained Episcopal priest, a prolific author with books and articles covering a wide range of topics, but especially focusing on the church and the Holy Spirit or ecclesiology and pneumatology. Ephraim, thank you very much for agreeing to this conversation today, and I'm happy to make your acquaintance. It's a great pleasure, uh, Stephen, and a privilege as well. Thank you. Good. All right. The prompt for this conversation relates to an article you recently wrote for First Things titled Theology After the Virus. And it's a really an intriguing article and, and you know, challenging for people who work in theological education, but, but even beyond that group. So beyond the obvious and and uh, the obvious economic and psychic pressures that this pandemic has caused, that's the virus in the title, you make the point that it presents us also with the opportunity to rethink and re-engage theological education. And you suggest that the direction that we're on is towards smaller and more focused educational communities. And uh, I, I understood your article to make a three-part proposal that fits along a, a spectrum. And so those three parts are the university-style theological school and the large seminaries that we know very well. They will continue to have a place, but they're moving from the center to the end of the spectrum or perhaps to something that we might call the margins. The second uh, point you make is on the other end of the spectrum are congregation or home-based enclaves of serious study and discipline. As you put it in the article, I'm quoting you now, bound to holiness of life and humility of mind. We Wesleyans love that, that language. Given over, back to your quote, given over to the indwelling word of Christ. And here you suggest the retrieval of ancient and medieval approaches to education. And thirdly, in the middle, you say this, somewhere in the middle, some form of immersive re residential model should re-emerge. And here you, you, uh, you refer to late medieval or early modern movements like the Jesuits. Um, and reform schools, uh, were you thinking maybe of uh, the Institute, or is it the Institute or the Academy in Geneva? Yeah, that kind of thing, but also, yeah. but anyway, we could go into that. There were some earlier efforts at, uh, this kind of immersive thing in certain reform groups as well. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I, 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 love, I love this spectrum and I'm curious how you, imagining these three entities, areas existing, 
and leaders in each, how would the leaders talk to each other? How would they think about collaborating rather than just competing, which might be the, the, the reflex impulse of people in already established institutions? Right. Uh, I, I think one of the things just to, to clarify about the, the continuing viability of some of the more normal uh, forms of theological education that we've had, university-based, seminary-based. One, one of the conditions for that viability, however, is some rejigging of focus amongst them as well. So in other words, um, even the, 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 the current models cannot go on as they've gone on. It's not just that they're gonna be fewer of them, uh, even just to survive, and, and be useful, they're gonna to have to change their focus in some way. So um, that's important to say on the competition issue because it strikes me that anybody who's gonna lead a normal theological education is gonna to have to buy into the fact that, that changes are necessary and they're gonna be the kinds of changes that people involved in these other forms of theological education share. So I, I think on a fundamental way, the future is going to go with those who share some common sense about what is demanded for theological training, formation, and leadership. If it's gonna be a competitive model, which is based on different views about what's valuable and how to do that, um, they're not going to coexist well. But if they don't, it strikes me that the university seminary model is simply going to go completely down the tubes because I think that their future uh, viability depends on rethinking fundamentally what their mission is. Um, right. That's one thing. The other thing is, uh, I'm, I'm dwelling on the current model. Yeah, um, that's good. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that is based and it is still going to have to be based to some degree on the kind of accredited degree granting institutions that they now constitute. Um, that's gonna be very different from the other two things that I mentioned. They will not be degree granting. They will not, uh, hopefully they'll have respect. They may even have some kind of respect and acceptance according to some agreed upon, I don't know, a set of standards, but they're not going to be competing in, on the same turf uh, of, of uh, current models because they won't be granting degrees and they're not going to be looking for fitting into some standard like the ATS currently uh, provides. Uh, they're going another way. And as a result, um, now there, there is going to be competition perhaps for those who teach because they've been trained and they have qualifications and, and qualities that, that are valued across the spectrum. Um, but nonetheless, they're, 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 they're operating in very different fields of economic support and um, sort of uh, uh, what accountability in some sense. Um, and they will, as I say, have to have some shared vision fundamentally for any of them to survive. Because to me, let me just say very quickly, to me, this issue of where, where theological education is going is a, is a long-standing challenge that, that, that predates by several decades, at least, the virus. The virus is making clear issues that perhaps we have not faced as, as fully as we should have. But, but these are long-standing issues, and um, therefore, in some sense, the vision that, that we want to inform theological education uh, is also one that people have been thinking about and grappling with and being challenged with already now for several decades. We're not making this up right now for right. the first time. Yeah, that's true. 
So I am aware of a few trends in what, what we'll just call for the moment conventional theological education. That is uh, the MDiv, which has been the gold standard, the Master of Divinity, or it's whatever the analog might be. Um, it, uh, a lot of schools have reduced the number of required credit hours, for example, to from somewhere in around 90 to down in the low to mid 70s in terms of semester credit hours. Uh, that's been one change. Another change I've seen is that schools are opening up various forms of what I'll call houses of study. So you have a denominational seminary or a theological school that opens up a house of study for a group of students from another denominational background or tradition. And so that's going on. And these are, these are what I think of as institutional um, efforts to shore up the student population. But what you're talking about is something really more basic and, and missional, maybe even curricular or cultural, certainly. And I wonder, it, would you make a suggestion or two, take, a, take your standard model, what would need to happen at a theological school and a university to, to step in the direction that you're envisioning? Well, one of the things, it's a great question because um, the kind of direction we need isn't necessarily all that clear. I mean, it's not out there already. We have to make up what the direction is and then apply it. Um, but in my, in my spectrum, as you mentioned, right in the middle, the center, are sort of immersive residential schools, I mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it strikes me that the, that the values, the reason I put that in the center is because I believe, and I think a lot of people believe, it's not just me, that the, the virtues of that kind of education are the ones that have been lost on the one hand, and that are secondly, very much needed for the future of the church is flourishing. So it strikes me that if you will, the, the, the benchmark for conventional education will be the virtues that are most fully um, fulfilled in that central immersive residential model, on the one hand. And on the other hand, those will have to somehow be adapted to what university degree-granting institutions do have to offer that these other ones don't. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, the virtues of the immersive residential model are uh, formational depth within a form of Christian life and commitment and knowledge. Um, they're, not, they're not there for comprehensive skill sets uh, or, or, or acquaintanceship with different uh, areas of study. They're actually meant to form, as I mentioned, the Jesuits, people to do a certain thing as fully as they possibly can. And of course, that's going to differ how one thinks of that according to your Christian tradition up to a point. But it strikes me that the areas of, of Bible, scriptural study, and um, uh, doctrinal tradition um, are the main ones. And I think one of the things that conventional schools are going to have to do is they're going to have not to trim their hours. <laughs> they're going to have to trim their offerings. Uh, they're going to they're going to have to be willing to concentrate in certain areas more than they have just those classical areas of Christian life and knowledge and uh, so on. On the other hand, they're, they're, because they're degree granting, there are virtues there. The virtues have to do with a certain kind of accountability to the, a, a wider critical tradition of learning. 
the academy, as it were. And I think that's good. I don't think the church can rely on that any longer. It's too fragmented. It is too diluting of vision and focus and so on uh, to have all of our ministers being trained in 21 different fields with a smattering of knowledge of what everybody thinks is wrong with everything else. I mean, the, the critical spirit and the superficiality of engaging it, which is the hallmark of the modern American, uh, Anglo-American university, has killed formational integrity in the church. But that doesn't mean that the kind of critical skills and accountability that universities grew up to have are, are unnecessary and not valuable to the church's teaching. They are. But we have to figure out a way in the conventional realm to recalibrate focus uh, and depth of teaching with those critical skills. And I don't think there's a formula, but I think that people have to those who lead and frame these university-related uh, or seminary-related schools that offer degrees are going to have to figure that one out. I have to say, you know, I'm currently in the process, uh, not me personally, but our school with ATS, you know, studies and accreditation, quality accreditation, and so on. Uh, I'm sorry to say, though, that all the standards virtually that ATS provides have nothing to do with what I've just talked about. And if you're going to organize your seminary and theological school according to the standards of ATS in any, any major way, you are simply getting your eyes off the prize. And you're, you're spending enormous amount of energies to do that. I'm not saying the ATS doesn't have something to offer, but uh, the, it is not what I just said. It is not that well-calibrated vision of, of, of formational depth uh, and focus and, and critical uh, intellectual um, accountability. Neither of those things appear. Okay, so, uh -huh. sorry, go ahead, yeah. No, no, that's fine, yeah. Okay, so let me follow up with that because the article does say, uh, it, you know, that the, and what you just mentioned, so going deeper in a narrower set of topics, subject areas, uh, means that other, uh, other subjects that are taught in seminary right now would need to be dealt with in other ways, for example, preaching, pastoral care, some of what we might think of as practical disciplines. Uh, those, those are gonna have to be addressed in other ways. And you, if I followed you, you made, your, your, you made the point on this, topic that these are learned by doing actually through experience in in a particular context did i did i get that right yeah that's that's correct right I and if so I, then how how would you so i'm a preaching professor in a seminary and you just you just said okay i'm going to eliminate your job <laughs> well okay can i yeah. just jump sure, into sure. that because yeah, of go. course that's what you're going to feel and yeah. all kinds of people are going to feel that but I'm not sure that's necessary. I remember we had a sort of thought experiment uh, with our own faculty a number of years ago. Uh, everybody got faculty got to say, okay, if you're going to redo the curriculum any way you wanted, in a fantasy way, how would you do it? And, and more than one person said, okay, what we're going to do if I'm fulfilling my fantasy curriculum is everything we teach, preaching, pastoral care, is going to come under the rubric of biblical studies. Now, what are you going to do? So the idea isn't to eliminate preaching, 
The idea is to reframe how I do preaching in such a way that its main goal is to deepen knowledge and communication of the scriptures. Now, I'm not, that's an example. I'm not saying that that's not a, what some preaching professors already think they're doing, but I think the majority probably do not. <laughs> um, and, and so it's not a question of eliminating faculty. It's a question of sort of the framing focus of how we do some of things. That's, that's, that's one thing. The other thing you mentioned, though, of course, is there are practical issues of pastoral care and so on. I think many of those uh, things are, even ethics, are properly, are properly pursued in um, lived context, what we might call field education, but in a way that would have to be redone so that it's not just doing certain things and going back and, and talking about, yeah, gotta have teachers who are engaged in that in ways. And I've seen models about that, in, in fact. Um, where, where students might, for instance, several of them be, be engaged in the life of a, of a congregational community uh, with a faculty member. And that's where they're living. I mean, in the neighborhood, that's where they're spending time. And the faculty member is actually living with them within this context. So that the, 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 the seminary part of it is not a class. It's, it's, it's something else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, the faculty member takes on a, a different sort of role, more like a tutor or a mentor or a, how would you describe T it? Tutor would be good, a tutor and a, and a colleague, a, a teaching colleague, if you will, in that role within a common community. Um, I mean, part of the problem with a lot of pastoral or practical uh, courses in, as we know, in seminaries is that they're in the classroom and what they're talking about is not. So then you have field education and you have internships and so on, all of which makes sense, except I, I, I think a lot of this stuff has become uh, sort of centripetal. It's, it's been decoupled and you have different places. Students really don't make the connections. What I'm suggesting is that um, uh, sort of some of that stuff move off, move out of the classroom, but with, with professors, move out of the classroom into the lived community of the Christian church or mission that's taking place. Right. And seminaries can do that. They're equipped to do that. Mm -hmm. So that, that raises an implication for me. Uh, and now let me, let me think as if I were a, a young person entering a graduate program. I feel called to teach in theological education and help prepare people for the ministry. And, and taking what you just said, if I'm thinking of a, some sort of practical area, for example, I've, you know, I've worked a lot with youth ministers and college ministers. So let's take youth ministry, for example. If I want to teach something related to youth ministry, and I realize there are already perhaps questionable implications about what I'm saying, but if I want to teach in that area, how do I think about preparing myself in my graduate program to, to follow a pathway that you've just described where I'm not really in the, I don't, my primary identity is not in the academy. It's not going to be in the classroom. It's rigorous. It's intellectual in the best sense of that word. And yet it's still carried out. It's instantiated in a different way outside the walls of the classroom. How should I think about my work as I go into it? Well, I'm not sure that sort of university-based theological education is the place to form theologically rigorous uh, and practically wise youth ministers. 
I think it's doing something else. This is my point is that these, these schools can no longer be the place where we put all our, all our students uh, who are going to be there uh, to do the ministry for, for the church's life. Um, I think it's a little more specific. Um, now, by the way, I, I also don't want to say that I, that I'm, I'm approaching this with all this worked out. I think that these are things that we have to, we have to allow to develop out of refashioned commitments. Let me go back though to say, I'm, I'm not avoiding your question. I'm not sure quite how to answer it totally, but go back to something you said at the beginning. One of the things that conventional theological schools are doing is reducing hours for an MDiv degree and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, uh, a lot of that is enrollment driven. And um, there are a lot more things that these seminaries are doing that are enrollment driven. They're allowing part-time uh, uh, online, part-time this, that, and the other. I think many of these schools you see are disappearing and they will disappear. And what's gonna be left have to be schools that can function in a way that is not enrollment driven. They will either will have to have the endowments, they will have to have positions at universities where they're being supported through the larger budget and so on. That's why they're not gonna be that many left. Mm -hmm. um, but to do the work they're gonna to have to do, they are going to have to be rigorous full-time um, programs um, that no longer uh, are built upon part-time students and so on. I mean, that's been part of the problem. So if you're a, you just mentioned a youth, somebody who's called to youth ministry who wants to be formed in that in a theological rigorous fashion, I think those schools left standing of a conventional kind are going to ask precisely that such students, first of all, be willing to be full-time in this rigorous theological formational context. That's number one. And number two, as this develops in a way that that is, is, is sort of more focused in its curriculum and, and, and finds a way to engage its practical aspects in community life in a way, that's, that's where that, that youth ministerial uh, expertise that's gonna be critically uh, intellectually buttressed is going to have to happen. But I see the point is, I, I don't think that's the way most people learn youth ministry anymore. They learn it. By, by working, by taking a course here and there, uh, maybe they in the end get their MDiv and they, they, I, I don't think that's, that's gonna work anymore. I'm not sure it should work anymore. Right. Um, I'm not sure we've helped youth ministry by allowing the bulk of our youth, our youth ministers to be trained in what is frankly a haphazard in a self-motivated way. Um, so. Yeah, good. Um, well, that, you know, I think there, there, it raises two thoughts for me. Uh, one, you know, sort of grasping the obvious here, to work out uh, the best theological preparation for people who think of themselves as entering more practical disciplines will necessitate much closer and, and, and well-thought-out collaborations between the church and the academy. That's one thing. But the other point that I want to make pretty quickly is that anybody in a practical discipline like what we think of as youth ministry or college ministry, which I, which I know the best, they still need to be willing to do the 
the thorough and deep theological formation related to the three kind of core disciplines. Uh, and then the, their particular vocational location can grow out of other kinds of context as they should, but, but they have to be willing to go deep along with anybody else who's going to enter into I'm in full agreement with the way you've just put that. Uh, I think that's been something that it's not that people necessarily have resisted it, but over time, I think that set of commitments have been diluted for all kinds of different economic and lifestyle, life, econo uh, personal economic uh, reasons and so on. I want to pick up one thing you just said is okay. that this collaboration with churches. Um, I think that that's certainly one of the points I, I tried to underline is that the future of theological education is going to be that which is supported by whether we call them churches or congregations or vital Christian communities, not by uh, denominations. I mean, the denominational support of, of seminary education has simply dried up. Uh, that's, that's, I think, across the board. Um, denominational seminaries no longer have much, um, uh, much uh, uh, ballast economically, nor do they seem to have a whole lot of, of, of uh, I don't know, what would you want to call it, um, kind of intellectual, ideological support. Um, it's not clear they're valued <laughs> the way they once were. Right. And, and I'm not saying that's a, that's a failure, that's a change. And part of it has to do with what denominations are going through as well. Um, you know, these are much bigger issues uh, and also harder to predict, but, but you know, futurologically. But uh, I do think that um, uh, conventional theological education is going to have to have a much stronger partnership with congregations. On the other hand, that's precisely what's going to make them a little different is that they are no longer um, the only ones doing that and that there will be other forms of theological education that will be even far more congregationally or communally rooted. Um, and that's what we have to look at, I think. Uh, that shift to something that is going to really grow out of living Christian communities rather than institutions. Yes, and this organization that we're, that I'm, so to speak, representing in this podcast conversation is a foundation for theological education. And historically, our mission has been to raise funds to support PhD students who will then enter into a vocation of teaching, research, scholarship, publication. It's not limited to that. There are plenty of people who have gone into the local church uh, and to other forms of uh, ministry within the church. But that's been, our, that's been our sweet spot for 40 plus years now. And we are aware of the need to shift and to um, realign ourselves with uh, what the spirit is saying to the churches in this day. And that's part of the reason we wanted to talk with you. Um, let me, let me, I have, I, I'd like to come back to this general topic, but I have one other question that came out of uh, the article that you wrote having to do with libraries. You make the point about libraries can be smaller. And 
you know, the, the easy response there is, yeah, because everything's online now and, and, you know, we have access to all these resources and that really is wonderful. Uh, what, what would you include in a list of essential readings in a smaller library? And this, this, you know, people, I know quite a few lay people, they're never going to go to seminary. They're not, you know, they just are hungry for the depth that you're describing. What would you recommend to someone even in, at that point who, uh, who wants to read, what, what would be in your library? Well, okay, that, it, it's a, both a pertinent question, but it is very challenging. And you mentioned, uh, partly because you just said, well, you know, online is, is, is a reality, but let's not talk about that. Well, we can't not talk about it. It, it, it is, it hovers, and it doesn't just hover over, it actually shapes the economy of publishing, of research and everything, um, and and so it's a it's a key element in trying to think through what kinds of resources uh, we want our students to to have access to. Let me start on the on the far spectrum. When I was first ordained, I went uh, my first uh, for four years uh, professional ministry was in teaching at a small Bible college in in Burundi in East Africa. And everything started from scratch there. We had no building that was, re that was built up from a destroyed uh, primary school. Uh, you know, we had no classrooms. We didn't have this and that. Well, we had no library. We had nothing. And furthermore, this, was, this is an Anglican church in a French-speaking, well, sort of French-speaking part, a Francophone part of Africa. So I didn't have anybody to send any books. I couldn't buy them from all the Anglophone churches that are getting rid of their libraries or anything because these are Francophone Anglicans, which is a relatively small number and certainly doesn't have any much published work in it. So the short, short end of it is that we had to do a full curriculum in which we had only the Bible. That's it. Now, I had more than that. I brought some of my own books. And I remember going, I, I graduated from Yale Seminary at the time. I only had an MDiv. What in the world I was doing teaching anybody else? I have no idea, but they allowed me to. But I remembered going to some of the professors before I left uh, and knowing where I was going. You know, what 10 books would you, would you tell me to take with me? to Burundi. Um, I will need those to, to inform my teaching. You know, I went to famous scholars, Brevard Childs and uh, uh, um, Abraham Malherby and that sort of thing. Um, and I bought some of those books and I brought them with me and they were, you know, more or less useful or not useful at all. I guess part of the, the point was they could have been something else for that matter, because what drove the teaching was um, trying to allow the formative realities theologically that were being taught to emerge from the scriptures. And it wasn't because we were fundamentalists. It was because that's all we had. Um, and it was possible. I guess that's the thing I want to say. It was possible. Uh, it did depend on my having access to certain things, most of which were you know, so what did I bring? Well, I brought some Augustine. I, I brought some Luther. I, I brought a, 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 a sort of a compendium of Aquinas. These are all sort of classic expected things you might bring theologically on the biblical side. I, I brought, I actually brought the, the entire version. I don't know how I got it there. I never got it back of the interpreter's Bible 
thing, a dictionary. No, the dictionary, not the whole. Oh, the dictionary, not okay. The whole thing, but that was like four or five volumes mm-hmm. um, of a certain era and a certain point of view. Uh, approaching mm-hmm. biblical studies, you know, and there were things like that. These were things, this was long before the internet, uh, 1980s, early 80s. I had no access to anything other than that. Occasionally, I would go down to the capital, Bojumbra, where there was a Roman Catholic bookstore, which had books in French uh, by Roman Catholics, mostly, um, very dated also. They never sort of bought new things, it seemed. And, uh, you know, I could find things there which were sort of serendipitous, uh, ascetic, uh, uh, ascetic works about prayer and about, uh, you know, spiritual formation that were classic within a certain realm of Roman Catholic theology. Um, part of me says that libraries, I don't want to say libraries aren't that important, but what really counts is who's teaching. And whose teaching will find what's needed. Uh, either they'll be able to get it or they'll be able to uh, uh, communicate it. And with the internet, you see, then you have access to a kind of uh, malleable set of classics as they're viewed by those who teach or form that way. I'm not sure libraries are all that important anymore. And of course, if you're in the West, students can buy things. If they want a whole, I, I believe in, in the tangible book with pages and covers mm-hmm. and so on. But I also think that that's something students learn and they grow into. And we're in a new period in which sort of what counts as being grown into from a literary theological point of view is changing. We've got to leave an opening. Again, one of the things I said in in that piece is I'm from another generation. And what's important is that I be able to pass on what I've learned, but not to dictate uh, what this new generation, it's not just a generational thing uh, at any time. We're moving into a, a new period, a new era of Christian learning and mission. And I want to leave that open. Um, but I think, you know, if you, have a, if you have a school, we're not talking any longer of the conventional theological schools because they already have their libraries, uh, many of them enormously wonderful libraries such as I have access to and blessed to have access to in the University of Toronto. But we're talking about the other newer schools that will emerge and will have to emerge. Um, you know, what can fit in one room of a, of a, of a, of a large um, a, a relatively um, well-off church that is going to sponsor some kind of educational thing or, or some other kind of institute that's, that's working. What can fit into one large room? And lots of things can fit. And I think there's some basic things. They're basic theological classics. They're basic biblical uh, informational uh, compendia. Uh, and so on. They will vary based on uh, denomination and, and, and so on. But I don't think it's that complicated, to be honest. And given the online reality, it can all be sort of supplemented to one's heart's content, virtually, mm-hmm. uh, virtually, literally, um, in ways that we don't have to worry about. I think too much, there's too much uh, worry uh, over this issue of libraries, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, recently I've been thinking about the need to reinvigorate church libraries, and I've done I've done a little bit of superficial research on this topic, and had a couple of conversations with 
librarians and theological school libraries. Um, and what you're suggesting, I think, has some really fertile possibilities. If a church would uh, freshen its, its church library and make it truly a theological library in a basic sense along the lines that you're describing, then the church library and the you know, a, a seminary library could start to work out some partnerships, ways of, you, you know, of cooperating such that when somebody needs that larger set of resources, uh, they have opportunity for it. But, but to, to reinvigorate church libraries and make them truly theological libraries seems like a good thing to me. Well, I, I, I agree. And, and, you know, I think you've had this experience of, of going into a pastor's office and you look at the books in the shelf and you know exactly when that person went to seminary. Because <laughs> there's a set of books that were only read then or were popular then. I don't think that's bad, but up to a point, I think it would be nice to be able to say, I'm going to go into a pastor's library and I'm not going to be able to tell because there's a basic center of, of, of theological um, uh, writing and wisdom that could pass from uh, generation to generation. That's what we're looking for. I think, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the things that's driving this change in era, not just generation in theological training is that, uh, the church's uh, very life, in my view, has become too transitory and too, too wedded to moments and contingencies that have overwhelmed it. And that there is, uh, there is a direction that normatively, prescriptively should be taken, which is a re-embrace of, I'll call it a more classical tradition of theological learning. Um, this is not new. People have called for this and people have rejected it. But I think that is going to have to be the direction. What we're looking for in the church's mission and witness is constancy and perseverance and endurance now uh, in offering a bequest, not in responding to contingencies. The con contingencies continue to come. They will always come. But we do not need new books and new theologies, at least formationally, um, that respond to every contingency. Um, I think the church has been overwhelmed by it. Uh, and there are lots of reasons for it. It's not, it's not simple desire to be relevant. There are lots of reasons for why this has happened. But it's, that era is over, it seems to me, if the church is going to continue to be a witness. So as I said, the values of perseverance, continuity, and endurance are ones that any theological education, therefore library, should have as... Um, you know, uh, benchmarks for what it considers to be central to its resources. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, I think that leads to what could be my final question. And that, that has to do with, uh, you know, the, the young scholar coming up feels a call to be in this kind of vocation. And I've had any number of conversations, as I'm sure you've had with younger scholars who really wonder about their future in the church. They feel this calling. They believe it's from God. They want to be faithful to that calling. But the market and the kind of practical advice is, is saying, you know, don't bother. Um, so if, if, I, if I really am determined to follow this pathway and, um, and yet I want to 
prepare properly for what is to come, not what is passing. What would be a, a couple of suggestions you would give to a young scholar like that? I think you've answered this question in a way already, but maybe just to reiterate and focus, what would you say to a young scholar coming up in this, in this time? Right, and, and you are right that this kind of question is all over the place and the answers given to it are often disappointing and discouraging to, to younger people. It obviously depends on where one feels called with respect to the kind of scholar, scholarship. Um, I mean, there will, still be, there will still be not only room for, but ap absolute need for the kind of scholarship that delves into documents and to uh, analysis and, you know, that writes books and so on and so forth at, at, at what has been called a university level. Um, but already far less of it. I mean, I teach a lot of doctoral students and they all know, and if they know, they also try not to think too hard about the fact that getting a job after they get their doctorate is increasingly uh, difficult. Um, but um, there's the need for them. They're, the calling is true. The church benefits from the richly textured intellectual formation that scholarly training in, in theological disciplines provides and can provide. But where are they gonna enact it? See, that's the question. So if it's not gonna be in a conventional seminary university setting, which I think is a given, there just aren't enough jobs, period. If it's not gonna be in that setting, then where is it going to be? And um, there are gonna be different places, and that's why there's no single answer to, to the question. Um, some people are called to the ordained ministry congregationally and otherwise. That is a place, certainly in my tradition of Anglicanism and in reform traditions as well, that the scholar pastor has, has a long tradition. It's not necessarily one that is always valued by any means or easy to pursue, but it's there as a model. And I think that's one, that's one line. Uh, uh, if one is called to, to congregational ministry of some kind, and also called to be a scholar, those are not uh, contradictory callings. They are ones that can be um, combined, should be combined, and we have to help people do so who have that one. So that's one. Um, another era, era, area is if indeed we're going to have different ways of doing theological education, uh, congregationally based ones uh, and so on, uh, communally based ones, um, then one should be prepared for that. But the likelihood is the jobs there are not going to be remunerative uh, on a full-time basis. One is going to have to be have another way of earning money. So, and people used to call this bivocational. I'm not sure that's helpful, but I do think one has to have skills according to which one can earn money in addition to being a theological scholar and that, that one understands that that's what it means. This is not, this is also a well-known, um, uh, well-trodden path. This is not new. Um, in, the, in Judaism, many of the great scholars had other jobs. They were grocers. One of the most famous, one of the most famous, the Hafez Chaim, um, uh, modern uh, Jewish rabbis and scholars, Lithuania ran a grocery store. Well, he probably spent, he also ran his own school and he probably had a lot of, I don't really know the details, but his family helped run the grocery store. I don't know. But in any case, 
there was no there was no shame in doing that, and there was also probably a good deal of benefit in doing that uh, spiritually and theologically, not just economically. So I think we have to help people understand that there's a lot. You you got to be prepared to work in a different way than than being a full time scholar in academia. That that's mm. that's part of what being a Christian scholar is going to mean. Um, mm. Related to that, but not necessarily. Um, you know, it's a little different. It, it, I, I think we need to train our scholars to be missionaries in some way. The Jesuit model, or not just the Jesuit, uh, certain Roman Catholic orders, uh, scholarly orders, nonetheless train everybody the same way at a certain point. And only after that point do some move on and get their doctorates and however that's done. But everybody is trained to be part of this common life understanding that whatever they're doing is, is, is a contribution to that, and they're capable of doing it, whether in a missional, traditional missional sense or in some other sense. Um, um, uh, I think Catholics have been better at this than, than Protestants, to be honest, because they, 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 they've organized themselves. In, but celibacy isn't, the, ant, isn't the, the, the absolute condition to allow this to happen. You can, Protestants can do this as well as Roman Catholics if they're willing to commit themselves to the kind of ordering in common life, whatever that is. Uh, charismatic communities have been better at that perhaps than than others, but it's all possible. I think a little bit of a little bit of imagination, but a whole lot of commitment um, will allow that to happen. Right. Yeah. I think one possibility is that these young scholars uh, could become, in a sense, the advanced leadership for helping churches form these theological communities yeah. of, of of real discipline and humility, as you as you put it in the article and um, which means you know congregational cultures would have to be willing to let that happen and not just expect the pastor to do everything right as a lot of the churches that we know in the united methodist tradition have lapsed into that problem well, so that I, too would be a challenge i i have a, a younger friend who's a member of a, a relatively large although he says it's not i've not been to it uh, not mega church but a large and affluent presbyterian church and he says look they give away $1.4 million a year to overseas missions of one kind or another, but making a proposal that they give a million dollars, well, maybe just $100,000 to theological formation within their midst is an extraordinarily alien idea to them. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I think that no longer should it be. We have to help congregational leaders and, and, and congregations themselves understand that that's something that they're meant to do. It's not just a donation to the institution seminaries anymore. It's right. actually doing primary mission, which is theological. Yes. That is music to our ears in AFTI <laughs> for, for sure. Professor Ephraim Radner, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, it's, it's been rich. You've certainly got my wheels turning. Well, so, it, it's also a challenge to me. I, I just, uh, in case it sounded like I thought I had all the answers, I want to emphasize I have very few. But it's an exciting time if we're willing to, to embrace it on those terms. This concludes today's episode of the John Wesley Fellows Podcast. This episode was produced by Colby Reed with music by Dion Key via the Free Music Archive. This podcast is a production of a Foundation for Theological Education and the Wesley Fellowship Program, copyright 2020, all rights reserved.